Good morning. I am Adrian Summerlot, your children's ministry coordinator. Thank you for joining us this morning, wherever you are coming from, whether you are joining us online. Um, recently, I was able to go to my professional conference for liberal religious educators in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, talk about time and space and revisiting history. So I just want to let you know what you're in for today. <laughs> we also took a trip to Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I want you to be aware of how you feel things, where you're feeling things. Are you in your head? Are you in your heart? Are you uncomfortable at times with the things we're going to talk about today? I also want to thank you with immense gratitude for supporting having a professional religious educator here and for generously supporting my professional line so that I could go to be with colleagues to do this important learning that is critical for me to do the work to serve you. Hi, my name is Leslie Reuter and I'd like to share a few words with you. We often think of racism as a systemic problem, as a political problem, as a social problem, and it, it is most definitely all of those things. But there is another aspect of racism that we may not often consider. That is the racism that lives inside of us. Just as we need to fight systemic racism in our institutions, we need to fight the internal racism in our own hearts and minds. Psychologists have done a plethora of studies that clearly show that white people and even black people harbor deep-seated racist attitudes, even when they are actively trying to not be racist. The necessity of this inner work is particularly evident when we think about our UU values. We are called to pursue justice, equity, and compassion, and affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. We cannot truly live up to these ideals when racism lives in our hearts. And I know that racism, that there is racism in my heart. I know that I perpetuate racist stereotypes knowingly and unknowingly, even with some of the very words and phrases I say, because I haven't explored their shameful historical roots. I have deeply rooted unconscious bias that I don't even realize is there. I benefit from white privilege every day in a million small ways that I usually don't even think about. I know that in the split second when I first see someone, my immediate reaction to them differs depending on the color of their skin. Racism is literally inside my own mind, my own heart, insidiously affecting me and everyone I interact with. We must try to root out racism in the world, but simultaneously also in ourselves. But we don't have to do it alone. I don't have to do it alone. I know that in this place, 
I will find like-minded individuals who I know and trust and who are also doing the difficult inner work of journeying towards anti-racism. The UU community provides me the fortitude and motivation to continue working towards anti-racism in myself, our community, and the larger world. Even when it seems hopeless, even when the top of the mountain seems impossibly far beyond my reach. Racism runs so deep in our country's history, our culture, our communities, and ourselves. We cannot truly live by our UU values. We cannot truly be spiritually whole until we grapple with the reality that is racism. And yet, every step in the journey is important, even if we never reach the goal. May we gain strength as we take those steps together. In his book, Everyday Holiness, Alan Marinus tells us that each act of generosity works to pry, the, to pry open the heart a little, like clearing a blocked stream one pebble at a time. The flow of spontaneity is then freed to follow. It may seem strange to practice generosity in order to do work on your own heart that might even seem somehow to undermine the very quality of generosity itself, since the intention also involves a reward to the giver. Therein lies some of the magic of generosity. It rewards all. Though every act of giving is a reward in itself, it is particularly easy to see how each of us are rewarded for what we give to UUCCI and how it works on our own hearts. I think that most, if not all, of us would say that we receive from this place far more than we give. Adam and I give to UUCCI for many reasons, the warm and caring community, the creative and meaningful programming, the thoughtful and introspective services. But perhaps most importantly, because what we learn here makes us better people. The product, if you will, of this place is us, each one of us. We are what UUCCI adds to the world, a strong community of people who love others, pursue justice, and work for change. As Rabbi Nachman of Bratslav once said, if you won't be better tomorrow than you were today, then what need do you have for tomorrow? I am here and suspect that many of us are here because we want to be better tomorrow than we are today. And we know that the experiences we have in this place make us better. UUCCI makes me better because it makes me more whole. It makes my life more whole in countless ways. Though I only discovered this place five years ago, I cannot imagine my life without it. And that is the magic that happens here. Each one of us becomes more whole and are then better equipped to pursue justice, wholeness in our community and the larger world. The first step in making a more just whole world is making a more just whole me. And UUCCI is where that happens. 
So in this season of giving, as each of us decides how much to give to this special place, let us remember that an investment in UUCCI is really an investment in ourselves and that what, and that what we receive here is truly priceless. Hello, I'm Adam Reuter, and the reading today is Marginal Wisdom by Leslie Takahashi Morris. They teach us to read in black and white. Truth is this, the rest is false. You are whole or broken. Who you love is acceptable or not. Life tells its truth in many hues. We are taught to think in either or to believe the teachings of Jesus or Buddha, to believe in human potential or a power beyond a single will. I am broken or I am powerful. Life embraces multiple truths, speaks of both and of and. We are taught to see in absolutes, good versus evil, male versus female, old versus young, gay versus straight. Let us see the fractions, the spectrum, the margins. Let us open our hearts to the complexity of our worlds. Let us make our lives sanctuaries to nurture our many identities. The day is coming when all will know that the rainbow world is more gorgeous than monochrome, that a river of identities can ebb and flow over the static, stubborn rocks in its course, that the margins hold the center. Loving inclusion has been an elusive goal within our congregations. We are covenantal people and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together should have been enough to find us together in love. Many hearts have been and often continue to be broken time and again. We are covenantal people and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. The names of many of those of us who helped to make this denomination great were erased, their existence forgotten. We are covenantal people in the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. The pulpits and pews, which should have been warm and welcoming, were instead sometimes cold and unforgiving. We are covenantal people. The promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. People who were considered pillars in their communities were sometimes considered pariahs within the walls of our congregations. We are covenantal people, and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, 
should have been enough to bind us together in love. Many of us straddle two worlds, one of filiation and one of faith. Covenantal people and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. Our beauty is that we are all different and yet not different from one another. None of us should be considered exceptions, nor should we be subjected to baseless assumptions. We are covenantal people and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. The future of this faith is reliant on and belongs to all who embrace religious liberalism. Let us never forget that. We are covenantal people and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, should have been enough to bind us together in love. Thank you, Leslie and Adam for helping with that. That reading, and that litany came from the promise and the practice. That was part of the white supremacy teaching several years ago after it was brought to light the hiring practices within UUA that then caused us in our congregations to really shine light in cracks and dark spaces and to realize, yeah, there's problems out there, but there's problems in our house too. And it's up to all of us to figure out our pathway forward and through that. So while I was <clears throat> at my conference, I had wonderful ministry with uh, Dr. Paula Cole-Jones and Reverend Denise Graves. And the two of them imparted some wisdom upon me. I know like many of you, I'm growing and learning to introduce myself as Adrian Summerlot. And my pronouns are she, her, and they taught me two new ones, us and we. And I really like that because yes, I am my own person, but I'm part of us. You're part of us. I'm part of this bigger imaginable we. And maybe I should hold that more front and center as I continue. So if you'll join me in a little bit of a centering before our centering hymn, you don't have to stand up, settle in a little bit. Okay. As Unitarian Universalists, we sometimes get stuck in our heads. I want you to take with one hand and put your hand on your temple. With your other hand, I want you to find your pulse, whether that's on your wrist or here. I hope everyone's alive. Okay. All right. Our minds are important. Right? Feel that in the temple. But let go of that temple for a moment. Get out of your head. Follow that pulse into your heart. Find your heartbeat. Join me. you pat your heartbeat with me? 
Breathe in and out. We have one heartbeat sometimes when we're listening, when we're hearing one another, when we think about us. Our next hymn <clears throat> reminds us we have come far. And this hymn became very familiar by one of the people I hold dearly in my canon of people who taught me to listen, to feel, to identify what others might be going through and think about how I could help. We sing this song and while slavery has ended, some argue it has evolved as we look at our prison pipelines and the gross number of people who are currently imprisoned. I want you to hold them in your heart and the other injustices we are seeing with our black and brown neighbors and those on the margins, bring them into the center, bring them into your heart. As we sing, I wish I knew how. I invite you to raise in body or in spirit and sing it enthusiastically with all of your heart. Let me tell you a little bit about my time in Birmingham and then Montgomery. So our first full day of our conference, we went to the Living Legacy Museum, part of the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. But let me back up a little bit. One of the things that I'm so blessed with in doing this anti-racist, anti-oppression, multicultural work I've been called to do is that I am held in a community of love and care. We did not just hop on the bus and go. We knew this was going to be a heavy lift. We knew that we as mostly white people were going to feel uncomfortable, that we were gonna to have to sit with the gravity of the situation of history of ugliness in front of us. And they held us in love and care in the night before we had worship, we had service to bring us to this moment. One of the first things we did was we walked through ocean sounds and were, experiencing the transatlantic slave trade. We went through a literal timeline through the museum. And there was a lot of us, several hundred of us. So I had to walk very slow. I had to stop. The busyness wasn't an excuse to run away from what was right in front of me. And I spent more time in that part of the museum than I probably would have, and I am grateful. As I continued to weave through, I couldn't help but ignore the history that our faith grew out of the Boston area, where the slave trade benefited people like me, financed churches, 
places like that upon the slave trade. And before we went, they gave us this card. They gave, there's about 200 of us. They gave us each a card. And on the front, it said, the evidence of each life is our opportunity to do justice and live compassionately. I'm glad I had this card in my hand. I came back to it like a touchstone throughout my time. When I got to this part of the exhibit, those are not spices. That is not a spice rack. Those are jars of soil from some of the known lynching sites. It's always challenging when we come back and want to share our experiences because I can't quite share it all with you. I can't bring it back to you in the monumental way I experienced it. For scope, these are the size of those large pickle jars. They go from floor to ceiling on a wall bigger than the one behind me. It goes around to the other side. They have names, places, dates. It's just a fraction of what we know and what they've collected. I was there for a while reading all of the names. Many said unnamed. And one of my beloved colleagues came up to me and we checked in on each other. How are we feeling? And I said, I'm frustrated. They gave me this name on the other side of this card and a little bit of their story. Robert Lewis, age 28, bus driver at the Port Jervis Hotel, who was lynched at Port Jervis, New York on June 2nd, 1892. And I want to know more of his story. And I can't find him. There's so many names. And she was experiencing the same thing. And we had that moment together. Well, isn't that the point? The point is it's trying to find a needle in a haystack. In this history, that while I did not have a direct hand in, is in the soil I garden with. Is in the soil our schools, our churches are built on. And we sat there together, reading more names and just holding them with care that they deserved for just a minute. As we continued on, it was easy for me to start to find the through lines woven through history, suddenly clear like a pattern emerging in ways I had not fully comprehended before. Education, as you might imagine, is a cause dear and near to my heart. Thinking about how they were denied education. Then when they built their own schools, they were burned to the ground. Then when integration and segregation or segregation and integration then followed, I look at this classroom 
And I actually think that's pretty nice by comparison to what some of our kids are having today. These schools today are as segregated as they were in 1953. And while that may not be what we want to believe, if you look at your school district lines, if you look at the gerrymandering, if you look at the way schools are graded, if you look at the funding, if you look at the max mass exodus of teachers, it is there. But you have to look for it. You have to be engaged. Maybe. All right. So the next through line. The next through line I saw was in voting. Oh, I know you all care about voting and I'm not gonna get up here and politicalize anything, but it's a core value we share as Unitarian Universalists to have a democratic voice. And we need to remember that it is a privilege and an honor to exercise that right to vote. I know we have elections coming up. And I want to bring you back to a tiny moment in time. I'm going to give you three minutes. One of the things I did was walked into polling replica booths. There were three different polling literacy tests there. I've put one in your order of service. And there was a giant jar full of jelly beans. And one of the questions on the test was, how many jelly beans are in this jar? So I'm gonna invite you to look at this questionnaire in your order of service. For those of you joining online at home, I think I've sent it to someone so they can put it in the chat. I want you to sit with this for three minutes and see how well you do and if you would have passed this test and if you would be able to exercise your right to vote at the next election. All right. Anybody have any brave words to share about that uh, polling literacy test? And about you, I felt a lot of feelings when I read those questions. Disappointment, anger. Anyone else have any other words to shout out? Yeah, disgust, embarrassment, right? And voter suppression still exists. It's still happening. It's still here. Oh, Marty, can I have the next slide, please? Okay, I know we're running over on time, but if you'll bear with me for just a few more minutes, I promise we'll get there. 16th Street Baptist Church was a 15 minute walk from where I was staying. So I skipped lunch one day because I can eat lunch anytime. I don't have a chance to revisit time and space of both incredible moral courage and place of tragedy. Marty, can you advance? Right across from 16th Street Baptist Church is a park. The park honors the living legacy of all that happened. As I was in the park, it hit me. Dr. King was here. 
the children's crusade was here. A thousand kids came out of schools for the day. 600 ended up in jail. That turning point in our time when children were being arrested. And one of the reasons we focus so heavily on this music today, Louise, thank you for partnering with me, was how important the music was, is, and will be to keep moving us forward. Like the churches that allow us to organize, to find our support with each other, then, now, and in the emerging future, we have to see and hear each other. We have to take care of one another. We have to wrestle with hard things. And when we do, we sing together. We heal together. We dig deeper together. We hear our voices as one voice. So here was part of the structure of the park. Those four little girls who lost their lives that day. Something I forget, those four little girls, if they were here today, would be younger than my parents. It's not that far removed. The things I didn't know before this trip is one of the girls sister survived. Addie Mae Collins, you know, the one with the glasses? Her sister, younger sister, survived. She's blinded in one eye. And she remembered them tying the sash on each other's dress as they were getting ready to put on their choir robes. When we skip ahead, we miss those stories. Years ago, I showed my, I was viewing Selma, the movie, for my work. And my kids wanted to watch it with me. My husband and I said, well, other kids don't get sheltered from this. And my kids were very young at the time. I want to say my oldest was not about the same age as these girls. And it hit my children. And we had to pause. And we had to stop at that scene. Because for one moment... One little moment in our family movie watching, they could have seen themselves in that situation. Granted, they're white, not black, so the risk is much more small for them. And we talked about that. But growing up as like pastors, kids, religious educator kids, they're running around the church all the time. That could have been them. And I know my kids carry that with them. We can't be afraid to have open and honest conversations with our children. We can't be afraid to revisit history with our new life experiences that we have as we grow and evolve because it's painful, because it's hard, because it's easier to look the other way. If you ever get a chance, I'd encourage you to go. I'll probably have to bring more of these things into future worships. Because there just isn't enough time. And yet, we must make the time. We must revisit these stories and engage with them. <laughs> 